What is up, everyone? Thank you so much for listening and tuning in to another episode of What's Up, presented by GRNE Solar. Ryan and Marie here, as always, and we have an awesome, awesome, awesome show for you guys today. You're gonna this be really... is the peppiest intro we've, we've I know, done it's pretty good. Far. I'm trying to up the pep yeah. coming into this, but I, it's for a good reason, because we do have a really awesome interview. We talked today with James Elsmore, who it's hard to it, he's d- like a jack of all yeah. renewable and sustainability it's traits. hard to refine him down to one thing but yeah. the guy has a number of organizations that he works with to basically foster sustainability and renewable independence in island nations it's kind of where his main focus has been so it's been a really cool conversation about the different sustainable methods that some of these mainly pacific and like caribbean islands have been implementing and the different types of renewables and some of his work also with the governments of these countries too. Two things I took away from the conversation is he's doing things that aren't being done here and the way that he goes about his processes aren't typical. And then the other thing I took away from it is he's young. He is young and it is so motivating to hear his story of how he um, got involved with one organization in particular, Solar Head of State, and then how he founded um, Island Innovation. And I actually reached out to him because he reached out to us on Twitter and said, hey, you guys are into sustainability. Check out my blog, Island Innovation. And I checked it out and I said, this guy's awesome. So I reached out to him, uh, direct messaged him, and I said, slid we the want DMs. Yeah, I slid <laughs> in the DMs saying, be on our pod, man. <laughs> uh, but it was a great conversation and, and really, really motivated to mm-hmm. uh, look at things. Yeah, it made me kind of sad, actually, because he's about the same age as I am, but he's on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Mm-hmm. And apparently... I'm not. <laughs> well, at last we can, I checked. Uh, we can fix that now. He oh. he motivated you. There you go. Motivated. I can I can make the 40 under 40 list. <laughs> <laughs> it just gets easier to get on there. It's, yeah. it's 50 under 50 and then 60 under 60. It gets easier and easier as you get older. But knowing apparently. that, I don't know. I feel like everybody that listens to this is going to want to like punch a f- hole through their floorboard and like Flintstone at home. They're going to be so motivated. Yeah, especially because you're not going to want to use carbon. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Sustainability. Nice. Let's go. Thank you guys so much for listening. And please stay tuned to hear from James Ellsmore, director of Solar Head of State and founder of CEO of Island Innovations. All right, Marie, hit it. From GRNE Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. All right. All right. Well, we now welcome on a very special guest. We have James Ellsmore on the phone. He is a sustainability contributor for Forbes, director at Solar Head of State, and the founder and CEO for Island Innovation. Uh, James was also recognized on Forbes 30 under 30 list for his help and his work with Solar Head of State. James, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, we're, uh, we're very glad to have you. So let me start off with this. How do you feel about being under 30 under 30? <laughs> well, I don't know if we can say recently anymore because it was it was two years ago, but semi recently. Um, <laughs> yeah, obviously that was a, a fantastic honor, great experience, and um, Solar Head of States actually and an NGO. And over the last five or six years, have put really a lot of uh, a lot of work into that organization, and so to get that honor was obviously a, a really great privilege. 
Yeah, absolutely. So while we're on that topic, we might as well jump right into that. So give us a little overview of, of Solar Head of State. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the organization, as I said, is, a, is an NGO. We're technically based in California, but we're operating worldwide. Um, we have various different projects. So, so the name of the organization originally came actually from a campaign asking President Obama to install solar panels on the White House. This was about 10 years ago. And the idea behind okay. um, particularly a decade ago, when solar had even less visibility than it does now, was the idea that by installing solar on the White House, it was a very strong statement from the president um, to, to publicly back renewable energy. Yeah, so, that campaign, um, and that happened. And while we were actually doing that, although I say we, this was before I, I actually joined the organization, we were approached by President Mohammed Nasheed of the Maldives, which is a small island nation in the Indian Ocean, um, only a few meters above sea level, so very, very vulnerable. And he actually worked with Solar Head of State to beat President Obama and become the first world leader to install solar on, um, I guess, the executive residence. And so from that, this campaign came out and we, we decided really that there's an importance of getting solar on prominent government buildings um, for, the, for the publicity value, for the political value that, that that has. And so since then, we've worked a lot in small island nations, um, most recently done projects in St. Lucia and last year on the Office of the Prime Minister of Jamaica. And now we're working um, on several projects across the Pacific Islands and the Caribbean Islands, um, which are very interesting places to work because they have extremely high energy costs. So for example, in Jamaica, the average Jamaican pays four times more for their electricity than the average uh, American, despite the fact that the income in Jamaica is about 10 times less than the average American. So there's some big oh. needs renewables that. For these solar installations, do you guys have a established team or do you utilize workforces from the different locations? So we, we have our own team that, that does a lot of the coordination, but we absolutely always want to use local companies for the installation. Um, that's not possible in, in every country. Some of the smaller countries don't necessarily have a company um, that does solar installation. So in those cases, we may have to bring someone in. But for example, in Jamaica, um, it's a relatively large country, almost 4 million people. Um, they have several, they have a well-established local solar market. And so we work with the local solar company um, to do that installation and then provide, uh, if, if necessary, we can provide some of the extra support from our side as well. And then are you guys able to track the ripple effect of what these installations are doing for the economy and workforce? It's been difficult. So we've really been trying to, to track that and work out what the implications are um, of doing these solar installations, but actually tracking any either changes in public perception to renewables or uptake in renewables to these projects is a challenge. Um, so, so in terms of the metrics, that's been, that's been a difficult one for us. But what we've been able to see is, for example, in Jamaica, the Prime Minister used the installation of solar panels on the Office of the Prime Minister as an opportunity to then announce his government's goal for 50% renewable energy for the country by 2030. So it's been a good platform, it's been a good way of, of building attention. Um, and, and in terms of continuity of keeping that impact going, we've been organizing um, youth engagement competitions. We recently organized the Jamaica Solar Challenge, um, where we engage young people to create um, information about renewables. And uh, the winner of that made this fantastic dance hall song about solar energy, which uh, 
I guess I can send the link to you guys after this to include in the notes. Oh, yeah. absolutely. We'll put that in the notes. We can have that as our outro song. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. I imagine you got to be pretty proud, actually, because it seems like a lot of these you know, nations that you're working with, kind of a market develops from putting solar on the government buildings that you know, now they're, like Jamaica is announcing, 50% renewable. Do you see that a lot happening with some of these smaller countries? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say that we kind of, you know, directly develop the market, but we're part of a, of a group of organizations contributing to that and, and helping push this. And the Caribbean, as I mentioned, is, is a very interesting one for renewables, just because any small islands, the, the cost of electricity is extremely high. There's been a dependence on diesel for a long time, um, which was always imported from Venezuela, and clearly with political events in Venezuela, um, that's an added complication. And um, there's also a general sentiment of, of more and more wanting to be, to be greener, uh, particularly for the islands that depend on, on tourism. It also helps their branding if they're able to um, be more sustainable as a, as a country. It's a good point for tourism as well. Um, and then finally, when there's all the discussions happening at the United Nations and on the high level, um, island nations are some of the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Clearly, they're not the ones that are contributing the most to it but there's a sense of wanting to lead by example. Even if their emissions are minuscule, they want to make a statement by making strong uh, moves towards renewable energy. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure a lot of these island nations too are fairly swayed by what they're seeing happening like in Puerto Rico, you know, where their entire grid was decimated. And now they're trying to build renewably afterwards and getting a lot of challenges in that case. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's it's, I, I would argue that renewables actually make islands more resilient to storms like that, like, like what happened in Puerto Rico. I mean, the reason that Puerto Rico took so long to recover is that they had a very outdated grid, um, which relied on centralized generation. And so actually, by moving to distributed generation on individual homes, um, and, and obviously if the, the, there are storage systems as well in homes, but even if there are not, um, it, it makes the island more resilient to future storms. And so one of the plans in Puerto Rico, now it's difficult to know when or, or if this will happen, but one of the suggestions has been to divide the island up into eight microgrids. So each of those microgrids can maintain operation if one goes out. Whereas what happened in the last hurricane was the hurricane came through, knocked out a few key, key cables and knocked out the entire island's uh, electricity supply. Crazy. But it's kind of, it it was it was a horrible storm. Obviously, it did a lot of lot of damage, but it kind of worked as a a good cautionary tale for not only Puerto Rico but then other islands that could be susceptible to storms as well too. It's been an opportunity for Puerto Rico to to really rebuild itself. Um, now, there's a lot of other political things happening on the ground in Puerto Rico, and obviously the situation is complicated. But I think a lot of people saw this as an opportunity that the grid was destroyed. Um, to rebuild it in a more resilient and more sustainable way. And so, although the governor, the previous governor has now um, uh, been, been removed from office, um, there were statements under, the, under that government that they would move towards 100% renewables. They've actually got some of the most progressive solar adoption laws in the, the United States now, um, in terms of individual uh -huh. households for solar. Um, but obviously, uh, there's a bit of political uncertainty there now, so it's difficult to know how it's going to, going to play out over the next year or two. Um, as a kind of policy then for solar head of state, you may have, it sounds like this is already 
answered, but is there any other qualification to be a, in the solar head of state you know, program, or is it all you're going to presidents and prime ministers of these countries? Well, we, I mean, we're not going to do a project in North Korea, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> limitations on which governments we're, we're working with. And right now we have the focus on the Pacific Islands and the Caribbean Islands. So um, we kind of know which governments we, we're working with over the next two or three years. We're not actively reaching out to, to other governments to, to promote this. So um, we obviously do think carefully about which governments we're partnering with and, and, and um, uh, obviously have some criteria for good governance, et cetera. And also we want to make sure that the governments we're working with actually do have positive goals towards renewables. We, what we want to avoid is um, greenwashing where by installing solar on the parliament buildings and then continuing anti-solar coal policy would cl clearly be an example of greenwashing. So we want to make sure that the governments are actually actively working in the right direction as well. So is it all government buildings that you're looking to put solar on or is it just like an executive residence? Um, it, it, it depends on the country. Every country with solar head of state is different. So in some cases, the parliament building might make more sense. In some cases, a lot of smaller countries don't have a public executive residence. Clearly, it's got to be a, a public building because this is something that benefits the whole people of, 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 of the country and not just an individual. So um, it would vary from country to country. I mean, the next few projects we have, we have a partnership with the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States, which is uh, the chain of small islands, including St. Lucia, Grenada, uh, St. Kitts. Um, they have 10 members, and so we're working with them to install solar on government buildings in all of their member states. And then our other project is with the Pacific Island Development Forum, which has 12 members, um, including uh, Tonga, Fiji, and the Marshall Islands. And we'll also be, be working with those over the next year to complete those installations. So um, yeah, so pretty diverse places, um, and, but they're all interesting in that they are committed to renewables. And um, I should mention as well that each of our projects in these countries will include battery backup. So the idea is that these key government buildings, when the, in the event of an extreme natural disaster like we saw in, in Puerto Rico, these important buildings, uh, coordination and, and, and rebuilding can happen from, would still be powered um, through the battery system and solar system. So I think that's an important kind of climate resilience argument, particularly in small countries. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're kind of seeing that even in our market, which is you know not as uh, you know have as many yeah hostile or have as many problems with it. That battery backup is the big you know next thing as far as renewables go. So it's great to hear you guys are already incorporating that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a big there's a big movement internationally. I mean, clearly in, in some countries the need is even more pressing than others. But it's interesting now people adopting this idea of wanting their energy independence and moving towards storage. And I think we see storage becoming cheaper and cheaper. Um, is only going to drive 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 more interest in, in individuals going off grid or, or partially off grid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean you're going to see a total change. I think in probably the next ten years of of how the grid works and not only on small island nations, but in you know, larger, you know, larger countries as well. Well, I think an important point there is what you're seeing now in the small island nations is kind of like looking into the future of the US because the price is so much higher for electricity. It means that there's an added incentive to install battery and take yourself off the grid earlier. And so it's almost like an accelerated version of what I think we'll see long-term across all utilities, 
that utilities in some of the small islands are finding challenges as they lose some of their big customers. So for example, in Jamaica, the biggest university on the island decided to take itself off grid and generate everything itself. Um, in some of the other islands, you see hotels or wealthier individuals take themselves off grid. And so with a growing amount of grid defection, the utilities are really thinking, right, what can we do to change our business model and be proactive to make sure that we're profitable into the future? And so I think that's kind of, that, that, that's, that's an issue that all utilities will face, but it's particularly uh, prominent in the islands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially on a smaller scale too. But once it, I mean, it's definitely going to happen here. We're already seeing some utilities fighting kind yeah. of against you know, large scale adoption of renewables for that very reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have you, I mean, you're any of your work with any of these countries, are you specifically targeting ones that are favorable to solar or have you tried to reach out to countries that maybe are not super and try to explain the benefits and kind of sway them? I think now in terms of the small island states, um, most of them are on board. I mean, there's, there's very few countries that are not on board um, with renewable energies. Maybe a couple Trinidad and Tobago is an example where they have large oil deposits and are maybe a little bit further behind some of the islands. Um, but even there, they're, they're waking up now and the government is seeing the value of renewables for the long term. But in terms of the countries that we're working in, most of them are, are fully aware and fully supportive of renewables. Um, the practical aspect comes with things like financing, um, the difficulties of actually financing some of these projects in some small economies rewriting the policy and creating effective policy and then of course the same battles that you see in, in the united states with the the fights between the different stakeholders and, and the utilities and the government and, and people digging in so um there's definitely a movement and a big push um but but things don't always happen as quickly as they should have because of these other complications clearly the technology is ready but policy finance and, and, and knowledge as well uh can, can slow things down Great. That's great. So as long as we're on uh, a lot of island talk here, let's talk about your other venture here. You founded and are the current CEO for Island Innovation. What is, uh, what is all that about? <laughs> so, I, so I started Island Innovation about two years ago, and that was after being in the Caribbean and the Pacific and seeing a lot of the similarities in those regions and seeing that there's a lot of reinventing the wheel. And then after also being in places like Hawaii, and then I, I went back to the UK and was doing some research in Scotland and all of these island communities clearly have very different cultures, climates, language, there's a lot of differences but in terms of issues around energy, waste, agriculture, sustainable development, they have a lot in common. So what I saw was a lot of reinventing reinventing the wheel and not that many opportunities to exchange information. Obviously Scotland and the Caribbean are quite distant so there's not that many channels open for those places to exchange information. But there are projects happening in the Caribbean that Scotland can learn from and vice versa. And I think it's important that the information flow is, is both ways um, because, the, because there are, are very interesting projects happening in, in both. And so I started Island Innovation as a platform really to um, share information. Just I like to write so I, I can share information. It's a newsletter. Um, then started a Facebook group as well. And I think one great example in the Facebook group, which kind of epitomizes what I wanted to do, was someone from one of the Scottish islands made a post about an energy project happening in their island. There was a reply from someone in Vanuatu in the Pacific that said about a project they were doing in their own island. And then someone in Jamaica commented on that and said, we want to do this too, how do we learn from you? And so for me, that epitomized what I was doing. It was a, was a, great, a great moment to see that kind of experience happening. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so it's gradually that to where now I'm uh, organizing the Virtual Island Summit um, with the idea of having an online conference to be able to share information because clearly the cost and, and distance of travel makes it, it challenging to have in-person events that can have this exchange. And so for me, the number one thing with holding an online conference was making it accessible to the general public and as, as many different types mm-hmm. of stakeholders as possible. There's obviously the added benefit too that people aren't flying halfway across the world and it's a carbon-free summit um, as well. But um, I think the opportunity here is to have, uh, let's say, a presentation about uh, waste disposal or about uh, battery utility scale storage and have speakers joining from Scotland, from the Caribbean, from the Pacific, from Hawaii, um, from Alaska, and and be able to exchange information on on how different places are approaching it to, to make sure that there is that flow of information that people can use. I love that. There are a lot of conferences around here, and a lot of what we see in these types of conferences are, here's the data, somebody should do something about it. And no one talks about what could be done, what could we be learning from each other, but it's like we're all here for the greater good. That collaborative piece is something that, we're missing. So I love this, that you are getting people together to collaborate and and help move these countries forward. And I think that actually a lot, I mean, obviously the focus is on islands and a lot of islands have very specific needs uh, too, but I think a lot of the principles could be very applicable to rural parts of the Midwest that are um, how they can kind of change their economy in the 21st century and how they um, interact with the rest of the world, conversations around the, the patients, um, but also around sustainability. And the idea is that actually what is being trialed in a lot of these small islands could potentially be ideas that are then applicable to even larger cities, larger states um, that can be used there. But the islands almost are pressed into being the first to find solutions because they have such restrictions. And, and like I mentioned before, with the high electricity costs, it encourages them to kind of move quicker in certain respects and other areas. So I think there's an opportunity there for uh, people to look to these islands as actually some of at the forefront of some of this new technology. Yeah, absolutely. Because especially on these islands, your resources are far more limited. So sustainability takes a lot more of a forefront in it as compared to, like you said, rural areas in the Midwest where you know, there's tons of open land and, and water available. So people don't have to be as sustainable. But if we can follow the same model as some of these islands go in where the sustainability is the thing that is going to keep the island running and we could have large scale production and much better practices. Yeah, absolutely agree. Your website does explain a thematic focus that you take. Uh, We have some of your thematic focuses here about like energy, branding, uh, infrastructure, agriculture, waste. Can you explain to us how you implement some of these in your projects or what are kind of the the top ones that you see in in every island that you're going to? I think the key thing is that I mean, regardless, all of these issues are connected, but in a small island community, you see that even more. You can't separate the conversation around water from energy if you depend on desalinization for your drinking water. Um, You can't separate that conversation then from agriculture if you depend on a lot of irrigation. Uh, Waste management clearly plays into this as well um, with burning of waste electricity, or um, the importation. So all of these different issues around sustainability are related. And sometimes the difficulties that we have is that people operate in silo. So people who are working in the waste energy sector focused on that and don't talk to people. And we even see that, I'm sure you guys see this in the energy sector. 
that people working in solar often know nothing about wind, um, despite the fact that they're very similar. Um, and so there are all these silos, which um, it's good to build bridges to. And also what I've seen is, um, so you have the public sector, the private sector, um, NGOs, which are very active in the, in the Caribbean, for example, and universities. And those four different groups might want the same thing, um, but they don't necessarily know how to talk to each other or how each other operate. And so there's friction there because they don't always work as well as they should do with each other. And so I think the opportunity and what I try and do is really to break down those barriers between the different groups, um, bring them together and facilitate the conversation. So apart from the solar head estate projects that we talked before, I'm not actively out there kind of implementing projects, but I work with companies that are implementing those projects um, and help them build the bridges to the players that they need to get to the I guess I've dabbled in each of those sectors enough to know enough about each of the sectors and to try and bring them together. And clearly there's a lot more to be learned in, in, in all of those, but I think by, by trying to build those bridges, we can benefit a lot. Um, because, as you say, the silos, I think it's kind of a, a natural instinct for a lot of people. You, you get into your sector and you get very involved there, but um, there's huge opportunities there just by, by breaking down those barriers. And, and with the virtual island summit, that's one of the key goals. It's obviously the barriers between the different islands, but also between the different groups working on, on solutions. To what are the typical renewable resources they're utilizing? Um, we talked about solar. Are there other resources? Yep. Yeah, so a different example from, from the Caribbean would be the Orkney Islands in Scotland where they have the European Marine Energy Center. And I actually recently wrote an article about this in Forbes, um, how they have some of the most cutting edge renewable energy technology in the world. Um, they're situated in the North Atlantic, and so they have very stormy weather, very high winds, and so there's a lot of potential for using the wind, using the waves to generate energy there. Um, marine energy has been a lot less successful in the Caribbean because it's generally more calmer and there's less consistent wind, but there are certain places where there are opportunities for that. Um, the other one is um, ocean thermal uh, technology, which uses the differences in water temperature at different levels to uh, facilitate air conditioning. And so there's a couple of projects using that that are still in the fairly early stages, um, but obviously make, make sense for big resorts or, or even airports um, that, can, that can use that technology if they're, if they're situated next to the water. Obviously you need to have uh, deep enough water for the temperature difference to be able to work. Um, but in the Caribbean, solar is by far and ahead um, the, one of the, the most deployed technologies. There are a few wind farms as well in places like Aruba, Curacao, uh, Jamaica. Um, but solar is by far and ahead. Solar yeah, is I, I know Scotland has a lot of offshore wind on it. Do you see some of that coming to the Caribbean then? Um, so one of the problems with wind is, is the financing. So solar is actually somewhat easier because it can be done on a small scale. And so that's why you're seeing a lot more distributed solar going up mm -hmm. with wind farms. Um, I, as far as I know, there are no offshore wind farms in the Caribbean. There's only onshore. Um, and clearly you need some space to do that. You need an area where people aren't, aren't living. Um, a lot of the Caribbean islands uh, have quite deep water off their shores, which makes building wind farms difficult. But I think there's a, there's a number of reasons there. I think it's political, it's financing, um, and some of it's geographical as well with, with the wind farms. And clearly also with wind farms in the Caribbean, you have to be able to build ones that can withstand tropical storms or hurricanes um, in a way that obviously isn't necessary in, in Scotland. So, so there are some, some added complications there. 
Um, obviously, solar needs to be able to withstand um, tropical storms and well. Um, in general, they do. Obviously, it's difficult for any infrastructure to survive a, a direct hit. Um, but the building codes in a lot of Caribbean countries are now done to the standard that um, they should be able to withstand um, pretty severe, severe weather if, if they're installed properly. Yeah, and I really like what you were saying too. It just piqued my interest about the uh, ocean thermal. So I know a big growing technology you know, in the Midwest where we are is geothermal, which would operate at the same principle using for heating and cooling with the temperature of the earth. But this is just using, you know, the water instead. So I feel like that could be something that is going to be huge in the future. Yeah, and I think with, so OTEC is ocean thermal energy conversion. And I think um, it operates on very similar principles, as you said, to geothermal. But I think that the temperature gradient is even more with water. So you don't have to go very deep um, to get much cooler temperatures. And so by using those cooler temperatures compared to obviously the hot, hotter temperatures on the surface, um, that gradient is, is something that can be utilized. To be honest, it's not an area that I know a lot about, but I know of several companies and projects exploring this idea in the Caribbean. And I think um, it's probably something that will be very successful in the future because clearly uh, air conditioning, particularly for the tourism industry, is very much in demand in the Caribbean. So when you are on an island, and recommending the ocean thermal or this new technology, what is that like? I mean, is there a permitting process? Yeah, so it, it varies a lot across the region. I mean, one challenge for businesses that are looking to work in the Caribbean region is that every country obviously has a very distinct set of rules. And so it can be uh, a challenge in terms of the market entry costs going into somewhere like St. Lucia, which has 200,000 people. Um, whereas you could go to uh, Colombia, which has 40 million people, and probably still have similar costs in terms of market entry. And so every island um, nation has its own set of rules and regulations, which, which can complicate things a little bit for businesses coming into the region. Um, and obviously it's difficult to make any generalizations because there's always exceptions and, and, and every, everywhere is doing its, kind of its, its own thing. Um, but in general, um, for, uh, for, for a, a domestic installation, there are still the similar permitting requirements um, that you would see in, in the United States. Um, in, in some, it may be less, less stringent. Um, obviously, for large-scale farms, you need to have the Ministry of, the, of Energy, uh, like solar farms, for example. You need the Ministry of Energy and the utility to be, to be on board. And often, the utility plays a big role here because... Um, they, they are, there's a single utility on, on most islands that have a lot of control over the, over the locals. So some utilities originally were quite resistant to allowing solar um, to go up and, and, and for, for the development of, of, of solar, uh, particularly on, on distributed, uh, on individual homes, because obviously that's fewer customers for them. Um, but now the utilities are looking at kind of how they can change their business models to allow people to install solar um, but also to keep the utility profitable. And I think that is important because um, there's a very real risk in some islands that in 10 years' time, the utilities could go, could go bankrupt. And the issue there would be the, the wealthy people who've installed solar and batteries would have no problem, but there's an issue that it, it could damage the entire country's economy and that those who have been unable to afford to install the solar and batteries themselves are the ones that will lose out. So I think... Obviously, there's an important argument here for solar energy, but I think it needs to be done in a way that is um, sensible, that keeps the utility operational, 
or at least ensures that those uh, who can't afford solar um, and, and storage have access to financing so they can install it for themselves. Uh, but it needs to be, it's going to be an important issue in the coming uh, we talked about it a little bit, but if you could um, simmer it down to, uh, say, one or two things, what do you think that something that islands are doing that would be beneficial to do in the States or really in any other country? Hmm. That's, a, that's a good question. I mean, sim simple things that we've seen happening across most of the Caribbean now um, and, and other islands worldwide are bans on plastic bags, bans on plastic straws and things like that. Um, there have been quite a high uptake in, in that, kind of, um, that kind of action, which I think has been a bit slow in the US um, in terms of moving away from uh, plastic, plastic waste and finding solutions there um, that, that we could learn a lot from. I think there's also going to be aspects of integrating high levels of renewable energy. So how do we integrate when we're above 50% renewable energy from a source or we reach 70-80%? Um, how do we do that in a way that is technologically feasible to keep the grid operational, whether that's using large amounts of utility-scale utility storage um, or whether it's distributed generation with individuals having their own storage. There's going to be some policy and technological barriers to, to get into those higher um, percentages of renewable energy. And I think there are certain islands that are more advanced than others on this, um, but there are plenty of islands around the world that are, are, are facing this issue today. And so I think we're going to have to look at them to see how they... How they... I think like you have a great passion for sustainability and renewables. Where did that come from? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I, um, I've always been interested in the renewable energy industry. I actually grew up on a farm as well. So I was, kind of, because I grew up on a farm in, in England, I uh, kind of associate a lot of that with my interest in the outdoors and the environment and maybe evolved from that to renewable energy. When I was working in the solar industry, I had the opportunity to go and do some research in, in the um, Pacific Islands and um, really realized how expensive the electricity cost was and how big an issue that was for the development. And then coming back to England um, and, and seeing actually similar issues. So when I went up to Scotland, I actually did my, my master's was in island studies, or not, a real master's degree in, in Scotland. And as part of that, I did a research project on how the Scottish Islands were approaching renewable energy and doing a comparison with the Caribbean. So um, it just kind of was a, a gradual, gradual evolution there. That's incredible. Well, James, we want to thank you so much for joining us today and talking with us about all of your ventures. People want to learn more about you and, and your NGOs. Where can they reach you? Absolutely. Well, I'll send you the information to include in the show notes, but I'd encourage everyone listening, I'd encourage everyone listening to go to www.islandinnovation.co forward slash summit so they can register for the summit. Um, it's free. And um, even if you, you don't feel particularly connected to an island or you're just interested in finding more, you're welcome to attend. I'm a big Twitter user. I love Twitter and it's where I post a lot of the articles. <laughs> so if you follow me at, at J Elfmore, um, J-E-L-L-S-M-O-O-R. Um, you can feel free to tweet me and tell me what you thought about this episode as well. Great. And if you want to learn more about GRNE Solar, you can visit grnesolar.com and also find us across on social media at GRNE Solar. Please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave us a five-star review. And now you know what's up with Island Renewables. Thanks, Dave. Thank you.
Cut down gas to electricity rate. Solar energy, Jamaica. Hydroelectric wind energy too. Just listen to the words of the song around that tell you. Oh, yeah. In a Jamaica, we're too fortunate. Right through the year, no sunshine we are get. You not to fret, get your panel set up, then collect. Then make sure you tell a friend how you happy if you see your light bill again. Make your friend tell a friend so we can better the economy then. Oh, yeah.